0: We acknowledge the traditional landowners of this country. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We would particularly like to acknowledge the traditional landowners of the land on which we stand. I am on Wiradjuri land. Tam stands on the land of the Dharawal people and Laurie on the land of the Turrawal people. We express our great gratitude in sharing this land with you.
1: Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.
2: Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. We are going to introduce Taryn Hallam, but I don't think that she needs any introduction. Um, Now, I have listed here, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that you are a physiotherapist from Sydney who's worked in the field of pelvic health for over 20 years. Is that right?
3: Yeah, that is, it makes me sound very old, but yes, that is correct.
2: (laughs) Not old, you are just wise, extremely wise. She is a self-professed introvert, the biggest actual math nerd I have ever met in my life, and the creator of Women's Health Training Associates, which is the educational organization providing the most recent research to clinicians in an understandable and motivating way since 2001, which is, I think, when I first started doing courses but when did you actually start in Sydney running WHTA? Oh no so my career started in 2000
3: and I did bits of teaching between 2000 and um, 2010 but it was the end of 2010-2011 that WHTA was actually born as a you know to say okay let's really try and get this happening and as an as an event
2: yeah. The most brilliant education that i have ever taken and I, I think i've told you before it sometimes ruins me doing any other course because i know that they will not present the way that you present it and then i can't sit through it well, um, but so you that's
0: way too kind but um <laughs> but thank you
2: Taryn is also the reason that I have felt I fell so deeply in love with this field of work, and why I became interested in further research ventures. So I am so excited. I can't believe it's the first time that you are on the podcast, but you're here. Welcome.
3: Thank you. It's really lovely to be here, guys. I mean,
2: hopefully we can
3: get through some really great information and and the field is something that everyone's always so keen to learn. I mean, that's what makes the field amazing to work in. Everyone's so passionate. So, yeah, it's great to be here.
0: And I agree with everything Laurie has said and you have so many talents that we could just sit here and probably talk about you for an hour. But one of my favourite talents is how you can just like pull out something that we've always believed and then just destroy it and show us that it's just an enormous myth. (laughs) So today's podcast is the coolest one because we are just busting some serious myths, which is so much fun. But first of all, um, let's delve into why you think there are so many myths that are so strong, like we truly believed them. How did that come about in the first place? Look,
3: I think, I think the reason that we have myths out there is that research by definition is really easy to misinterpret. I mean, it it mm. is tricky. And what I would say is that physios as general, we're really good at observing. That's what we do. We observe stuff. And when we observe stuff, then we're trying to work out the logical reason why that observation may have happened. What research is meant to do is to work out the observation, is it really causative or is it not? And the example that I would give is just because we observe something doesn't mean it is causative. The example that most people are aware of is for a really long time, people thought that exercise would cause you to lose weight. Okay, and there was this big idea that you could exercise really hard and lose weight. What we now know is yes, when we see people who exercise a lot, they're usually not overweight. Um, and that's where it started from. It was like, well, they exercise a lot. They're not overweight. They don't exercise much. They're overweight. And then what you realised was it may be an observation, but it doesn't mean it's causative because we always have confounding factors. People who exercise a lot usually get out a lot. They usually feel very energised. When you feel energised, you want to eat healthy. And so because you're eating healthy, then you're not overweight. And so it's actually not true that you can exercise yourself out of a bad diet. Your weight will be much more related to diet than it will be related to exercise. But people believed it for a long time because observationally, it looks about right. People who are overweight didn't exercise as much. People who are not overweight did exercise a lot. It didn't mean it was causative. And so the problem is, is that when we have science... We come up with a theory to say this is why it's happening. And it might work on trial number one, trial number two, trial number three, and trial number four. And then all of a sudden we do it on trial five and six and we go, it didn't work anymore. You can only have a law of science if it always works. If it doesn't work in some cases, there must be a confounder somewhere that we haven't considered. And so I think it makes sense. We can easily fall into the trap of observations that we make up theories,
0: but we have to prove that they're actually true and they're not just coincidental. And that's exactly why we need to do your research update every single year. Uh, We'll start with something very basic, which everyone understands and has used forever, and that is the Modified Oxford Scale. And our belief is that it is a measure of strength. Yeah, this is a really interesting one.
3: You know, I often sit with physios and I say to them, can you tell me what the definition of strength is? And it's interesting that if you ask people what is the definition of strength and you ask it in a group and you say get into small groups of five and try and all of you agree on what the definition of strength is, it's actually really hard to get a different definition of strength. Usually when we talk about strength, we are talking about force generation and it's how much force is that muscle going to be able to create. Now physios... When I get into this, we'll start to debate, oh no, but it might not be. It might, it might be whether you can create that movement in a functional position. I go, no, now you're talking about function. All right. And they'll go, well, it might be how long you can hold it and whether it lasts. No, no, now you're talking endurance. Um, it might be how much, and I go, no, no, I just want strength. I don't want what you want to assess in clinic. I understand you may want to assess other things, but let's get the terminology right. What is strength? Now, strength is a force generation. And when you look at other areas where they look at force generation, I often look at um, hand therapists and that when they're looking at grip strength, they'll often get someone to grip a hand dynamometer and in newtons it will register how much force is created. But you don't require them to move it through a range. It's literally against a force plate that may not move and how much force can you generate? When we think about modified Oxford scale, if you ask most people, they're feeling the muscle and seeing how much movement there actually is. And if you don't get much movement, then they say it's weak. If you get a lot of movement, they say it's strong. But I would debate, are you actually measuring force generation or are you measuring movement of the muscle. And that becomes a real challenge because what if you've got a muscle that's already moved 80% of the way through range because it's hypertonic? You don't have much range left to move. Does that mean it's weak? Is it not producing much force? That muscle could be producing a lot of force and there's only a bit more it can produce. That's different to not producing a lot of force. So, yeah, so I don't know that modified Oxford scale is a measure of strength. It requires movement through range that they may or may not have.
0: Love that. That's definitely what we use in our clinic. How much movement does it have?
2: But you're (laughs) measuring too with your fingers, so you're not actually using anything that's giving you, you're not using a dynamometer, or maybe in research, but not in clinic.
0: Yeah.
3: And there's. I mean, now some of the studies are coming out using a, Um, modified speculum dynamometer, which basically has two metal plates that are small, they go into the vagina, they sit against the walls and when the person contracts, it doesn't necessarily, it's not how many millimetres it moves, it's what force is applied to the force plates on that dynamometer. And there is a level of force that's being created just at the start And then there's more force that comes on when they actively contract. That may be getting closer, um, but there's a force measurement as opposed to a range of motion that you're actually looking at.
1: Yeah, I love it. And then how strong do you really need to be is the question. Do we need to be using these little little pads all the time to measure strength? What do we need those strengths for?
3: Yeah. Do you need strength or is the pelvic floor just about what position can it get to to support mm. things? And so it's not saying that modified oxygen scale is an invalid measure. It may be a really good measure to look at the movement of the muscle to get to a position, but do, should we be referring to it as strength, you know, rather than actually you have grade five movement. You have grade four movement, grade three movement, grade two movement of your pelvic floor. Um, because when people are, you know, I, I, the thing I see with this is when you have sometimes, you know, it's physios, we all volunteer our bodies um, to be able to do assessments. And what I started to notice was I would have quite a lot of young nulliparous physios who've done lots of Pilates, lots of core work. They'd come in and they'd volunteer for us to do practice vaginal examinations on and they'd have small movement of their pelvic floor. And when you say modified oxygen scale is strength, they'd go, oh, I'm weak. And I'm like, no, you've got small movement because your pelvic floor is already sitting very, very high. Um, you know, I have large movement of my pelvic floor, but I'm also hypermobile and had a 10 and a half pound baby. So, you know, when it's a long way down, it's got a long way it can move up. I don't know that's necessarily a good thing saying I have lots of movement of my pelvic floor, um, but strength has a bias to five being good and I don't know that with pelvic floor, lots of movement is necessarily good all the time.
1: It's always relevant. It's good to, I suppose, relate it back to GH plus PB then, isn't it? And It's resting tone in space, Mm -hmm. which we talk to a lot of people about. I love it. Okay, so modified Oxford scale, not strength movement it allows us to understand how much it's moving which is a good segue into myth number two that we'd like Mm -hmm. to bust and that is whether poor levator arnie function so therefore potentially i suppose not a lot of movement maybe or well it depends so is poor levator arnie function a major factor in stress urinary incontinence, or I might say that again, Laurie, poor levator ani function is a major factor in stress urinary incontinence. Is that a myth? Mm, yeah.
3: Now this is where I, I can start to talk about where we've had an observational um, error in what we've seen over the years and we've started to develop this idea now there's lots of reasons for physiotherapists to think that levator ani is the and the function of it and retraining the function of it is the major factor in stress urinary incontinence okay so let me give you the reasons why physios long term have believed that it is all right first so one of the reasons is that when you look at women who have stress urinary incontinence and women who don't have stress urinary incontinence, what we see is that when they val salva and they increase their intra-abdominal pressure, in stress urinary incontinent women, the bladder neck moves down more in stress incontinent women than it does in women who don't have stress incontinence. Their bladder neck drops. And that's what we refer to as urethral hypermobility. Now, when we looked at that, physios went, well, it must be dropping because the levator is weak or it can't coordinate or it can't squeeze when that intraabdominal pressure comes down. So the studies were things, you know, like uh, Thompson and colleagues back in sort of 2007 did transparent neal ultrasound. They looked at the bladder neck and the bladder neck dropped more. Um, when you you had a range of ones, we have MRI studies, Lyon colleagues in 2018, they did an MRI study and they showed the bladder neck dropped more when they valsalved. The issue is, is that the levator ani muscle isn't the only thing that controls whether the bladder neck stays high or whether the bladder neck drops. In fact, one of the biggest things that controls that is fascia, like the pubocervical fascia. Now, interestingly... <laughs> When they actually looked at the muscle, though, although the bladder neck was dropping more in women who had stress urinary incontinence, the actual level of the levator ani wasn't dropping more. So if you don't have the levator ani dropping more but the bladder neck is, that tells it's probably fascial why the bladder neck's dropping, not because the levator ani is weak. And, in fact, we have lots of studies to show that the levator ani wasn't weaker. In fact, we've had a recent systematic review come out that looked at all of the causative factors of stress incontinence. And it basically said that there is very little evidence that there is levator ani muscle weakness with stress urinary incontinence. Now, that's one reason why we're starting to, oh, maybe that's not actually true. The other issue that we have is that physios thought, well, it must be levator ani because when we do pelvic floor muscle training, people get better. So if we're doing pelvic floor muscle training and there's grade A evidence, Cochrane review, multiple studies showing you do pelvic floor muscle training and women get better. So everyone, see, it is levator ani. If we strengthen it, they get better. And then recently, we had a range of studies. McLean uh, first did it um, in 2013, then Medill in 2015, Lehman in 2016, that showed that when you do pelvic floor muscle training, you strengthen the urethral sphincter. So yes, they got better with pelvic floor muscle training. That doesn't mean it was because you improved levator Arnie. It could be that the pelvic floor muscle training was always working on the urethral sphincter. And they've actually shown, you look at two groups of women, those who get better and those who don't with stress incontinence, there's no difference in the change in levator ani function between those two groups. So there is unfortunately this belief that levator ani function is the major factor, but more and more the research is saying if there is a bladder neck dropping, it's probably fascial, not a levator ani issue. And if they're getting better with pelvic floor muscle training, it's probably related to strengthening the urethral sphincter, not the levator ani. And I mean, that's a a huge thing. And and look, I'm in this for the first 10, 15 years of my career. I focused on levator ani for stress incontinence, but my women were probably getting better because I was coincidentally training their urethral sphincter.
1: Yeah, I love it. And I think being able to, I suppose, as you get more experience, really pinpoint what the reason is in each particular person as to why they have that stress incontinence gives you even better outcomes, doesn't it? And of course, not always just doing pelvic floor muscle training as well
3: well i mean i think the thing is is that it helps us to understand when our patients are confusing as well because Mm. if you have someone present and they have really good levator ani function Mm. combined it's resting tone it's movement it's coordination it's control and they're still leaking and the patient says well why am i you sort of get stuck if you're Mm. thinking incorrectly so you know it is one of those things that there has been, I mean, it sounds pretty gruesome, but they did some um, needle EMG studies where they actually did the needle EMG into the urethral sphincter and also into the levator ani, And they actually showed that you can contract the urethral sphincter even when you have no levator arni contraction. So it's also the reverse way that if you have someone who's got no levator ani activation, a bilateral avulsion, that doesn't mean pelvic floor muscle training won't work because mm. you could be strengthening the urethral sphincter. So it gives us all these other ways to
0: think about how we can treat as well. Amazing, love that one. And I think we 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 feel that clinically now, too Taryn, since we've mm. opened you've opened our mind to this years ago, we're like, well, hang on, well, we should be able to assess the external urethral sphincter and now we can and we go, yeah, you can contract that without the levators and then patients can feel it and then it just is a like an added layer to your yes. treatment, which is we wouldn't have known if you didn't bust the myth out for us. <laughs> well, I'm glad that it's helped. I'm glad
2: that it's helped. Yeah. Um. But, Jo, didn't you have a myth that was somewhat related to that that you wanted to ask her about? No, that was that. That That's was it. that. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. Well, can I mess up the order just for a second? Because Mm -hmm. I actually think what we were going to do at the very end may fit very well here. Because one of the myths that we wanted to talk about was whether pelvic floor muscle training made a difference or actually lifted the organs when someone has pelvic organ prolapse, which could be similar along the lines you're talking about. Would that fit here? Can we do that here? Yeah, yeah,
3: absolutely. I can talk about that. Look, this is another one. and, And you know, Sometimes I love teaching because I'm presenting research that says, hey, physios, look how amazing we are. We get people better. Other times I have to present research that says to people, you're not going to do that. You're not going to be fixing that. And this is one of the things where physios don't like me talking because the news isn't great, okay, on this. In fact, um, even the sixth ICI, when it came out, there is a statement in the sixth ICI that says there is no evidence that pelvic floor muscle training will lift anatomically a prolapse. Now, the difficult thing was there was one or two really small studies, very very early on, where they said there might be a change of like by one stage of prolapse if you actually do pelvic floor muscle training now physios loved those and i don't want to mention the authors of those because it is one of those things that you sort of go actually they've sort of been a bit you know now shown to not be true there were flaws in the methodology in the study but we had one or two studies and there were, there were like about 40 women in the studies um there was only about half of those that they actually did the Full pop cue at the end to see whether the prolapse had changed. And they said, look, there may be a few people who actually their prolapse lifted a stage. Now, the problem was most of these were stage two, who may be lifted to stage one in a few people. But we know that prolapse varies day to day in people anyway. So if you've got a small study where you only end up assessing 10 people and you get a couple in one study You do, you can very quickly say, oh, maybe pelvic floor muscle training did that. Now, the biggest high quality study that we actually had in physiotherapy for pelvic organ prolapse um, was the Poppy study by Hagen and colleagues in the Lancet. And it had over 400 women in it, really good methodology, good blinding. It was an independent gynaecologist who did the POPQ pre and post after 6 months intensive training the you know the researchers did such a good job in making it not methodologically flawed okay it was a really good study that is the study that gets hailed as physio works for prolapse but the only conclusion that came out of that was the pelvic organ prolapse symptom score was better at 6 months that was the symptoms if you look at the full text there was absolutely no difference in, at, in anatomy at the end. The pop cue did not change. Now, I want to clarify that because physios, you know, will then say to me, but it made a difference in symptoms. And I go, it did. I'm not saying physio isn't worthwhile doing. There was some improvements in symptoms. Now, I can get into more debate about that as well, but we won't get into that now. But if a woman sits with you and she says, I get a mirror. I hold it down and I can see a bulge and if I do pelvic floor muscle training will that bulge have gone in six months there is no evidence that we actually change it anatomically. None of the studies have shown a a statistically significant change in anatomy. We might change symptoms but we don't change anatomy because basically When someone has prolapse, that prolapse is there because the fascia has ultimately given way and no amount of pelvic floor muscle training is going to undo that fascial change um, there. Now, if you surgically fix that fascia and then you have good pelvic floor muscle function, can you prevent it coming down again? Possibly, if you have a small levator hiatus and things like that, and that's a whole different debate. But you can't undo fascial dysfunction by squeezing muscle.
1: Hmm. I think people get a bit confused in that first six to 12 weeks you know that things um, can be a little lower at that stage Mm -hmm. and as to whether I guess pelvic floor muscle training if they do have a longer GH plus PB with a slightly lower anatomical Mm -hmm. bladder, let's say whether that would help. Do you know what I mean? Because they're in that first little patch of time where fascially they can recover still. Yeah. If
3: that make sense? I think, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the difficult thing here is can we, with pelvic floor muscle training, shorten the levator hiatus, shrink the levator hiatus and bring it up? Mm. And this is where I say to physios, let's think about any muscle training principle. If connective tissue, muscle in the body, can shorten we know that you know you put it off stretch for a prolonged period of time and you get changes in connective tissue and things shorten but you have to stay off stretch for a prolonged period of time now this is where your pelvic floor is at a major disadvantage because approximately 60% of the body weight of any person approximately depending on where they carry muscle mass and fat so it is a it is an approximate anything from 60 to 75% It sits above the pelvic floor, which means any time the pelvic floor goes into a relaxed state and that weight pushes down on it, it will go to its lengthened position. Now, you can't keep a pelvic floor in a prolonged, shortened state if you are an upright animal. As soon as you relax, it will go to its lengthened position. So even if you squeeze your pelvic floor really hard, When you relax it, it will go to length. And connective tissue muscle shortens when it is held off stretch for a prolonged period. Now, I say to people all the time, you know, a lot of people know in many, many moons ago when I was a lot younger, I was a gymnast. And when I was a gymnast, I could do splits to about 220 degrees, so well over 180 degrees split. Interestingly, I didn't have to hold the splits all the time to do that in fact as long as I took it to that length every couple of days for a short period I maintained that length it's actually very hard for pelvic floor muscle training to create a shortening of the muscle and then we get to another myth because physios will say oh but it, it creates a shortening I know that we have one or two studies Brecken and colleagues and a few others that showed a statistically significant shortening Statistically significant doesn't mean clinically significant and when you have people who have a levator hiatus area of 30 centimetres squared you might reduce it by half a centimetre squared but that's not necessarily going to be clinically significant. Um, We know that the research where you have people with prolapse and you put a pestry in and over three weeks you hold the organ out from inside the levator hiatus you hold it up Within three weeks, the levator actually, the levator hiatus shrinks inside because you've actually taken it off stretch permanently compared to what it was when the organ was pushing the hiatus out. Then we get a shortening. And so it can shorten, but it has to be off stretch. Perfect. Love
1: it.
2: Sorry for interrupting everyone in our myth-busting session. I hope you are enjoying it, but I wanted to give a little brief outline of the education and training that WHTA, or Women's Health Training Associates, provides. This is not a paid ad. Taryn doesn't even know that I'm putting this in here, but I really felt compelled to mention some things that WHTA provides, especially now that she's gone international and can spread her knowledge all around the world. So apart from her advanced face-to-face and live online courses, which cover things like pop, SUI, pain, exercise in the pelvic floor, every year in October, November, she provides a two-day annual research update live online, which alternates each year between the female pelvic floor and pregnancy postpartum. Not only does she go through all the updated research in the field that we should all know, but usually, We don't have the time to access or read or even understand. She breaks all the papers down into pieces and critically evaluates the research, even going into their statistical methods and how they did it and why some of them May not make sense. It's absolutely brilliant, and I mean, if anyone's going to make statistics easy, easy to understand, it's going to be Taryn. It's the one yearly course I think everyone should be attending. I'm going to put the link in the show notes so everyone can find it. You can head to whta-members.com, but I will let you get back to listening to all of us and listening to Terran myth, <laughs> myth some busts, bust some myths.
0: Again, another myth that kind of just allows you to build changes into your clinical practice so now um you know someone presents with a prolapse and you know you might be fitting a pessary but you'll probably be giving them pelvic floor muscle training too but your rationale Mm. is different so Mm. i can't change your anatomy with this but what we do know is it does change um some people's symptoms so it's definitely worthwhile la 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 Mm. la so your kind of rationale is just different so Expectation
3: is really important that if you start your treatment by saying, I will be able to improve your symptoms. I am not pretending that in six months, if you look, you won't see any prolapse, but I don't think you'll notice it as much. And that's the goal. And that means that when they come back, they can say to you, Look, if I really look, but yeah, like you said, I don't notice it as much anymore and we set up that from the beginning of what is Mm. our goal, what is our outcome, what's realistic. And at the end of the day, what is most important is that these women don't notice it, their life isn't affected, they can feel functional and that's great, but we don't make false promises
0: at the start of our treatment. Mm. And it is fascinating how it does change the symptoms and not the anatomy. I'm like, okay, great, excellent. Um, Okay, well, we're going to just... Um, move across to bladders now yeah. so is the detrusor overactivity and an overactive bladder the same thing so it definitely isn't um in fact what? <laughs> yeah i think what's
3: really hard is the terms are so similar overactive bladder detrusor overactivity do um, And You know, the terms are obviously so confusing that now um, the ICS brought out a fundamentals of terminology document like Drake and colleagues and a few others wrote things and actually specifically addressed this issue to say clinicians keep confusing the term overactive bladder and detrusor overactivity. They're not the same thing. OK, um, in fact, do you know that you can have an overactive bladder and detrusor underactivity? Yeah, so you can have those two. So let's talk about how can you have overactive bladder and detrusor underactivity. All right, first we need to distinguish some terms are symptomatic syndromes. Some terms are actually describing anatomy and physiology. So when you talk about detrusor overactivity and detrusor underactivity, you are trying to describe literally Anatomy and physiology, how the bladder is functioning from the detrusor layer. The terms overactive bladder and underactive bladder are actually symptom syndromes. So if you look at the definition of overactive bladder, overactive bladder is urinary urgency with or without urge incontinence, um, usually with frequency and nocturia, in the absence of an infection. So it's symptoms, okay? If you have urgency... They say you have an overactive bladder. Detrusor overactivity is actually that when they do cystometry and they're measuring pressures in the bladder, they identify that during the storage phase, when you should have a bladder that's relaxed and expanding, the detrusor is contracting. Now, the first clue that these are not the same thing is that if you send 100 women, to have cystometry who have urgency only about half of them will demonstrate detrusor overactivity when you do cystometry so they're not the same thing if you look at lots of studies in women the rate there's much more correlation in men to be honest if you look at men with urgency and you send them for cystometry the rates are more around 80 to 90 percent will show detrusor overactivity and i think that's also contributed to the confusion because You know, a lot of urologists are working, you know, with prostate issues, men with urgency, frequency, nocturia. They have urgency. They send them to spurt testometry and they saw detrusor overactivity. So that link came together. It's not the same for men and women. Only that half will show detrusor overactivity. So then everyone says to me, well, why do we call it an overactive bladder then? Like why, why is it called overactive bladder? And this is the next um, myth we're going to have is that the bladder wall is just a detrusor. When you start with the myth that the bladder wall is a detrusor layer only, then you're going to think that if the bladder wall is overactive, then the detrusor must be overactive. And that's just not true. The bladder wall has about four or five different layers to it. The inner layer is the urethelium. The next layer is the lamina propria. The, or It's also called the suburethelium. The next layer is the submucosa. Then there's the detrusor layer. Then there's the adventitia around the outside. So the bladder wall has lots of layers to it. And the detrusor isn't the only functional one. The urethelium is functional as well. And so that inner layer of the bladder is very functional. It produces neurotransmitters like ATP and ACH. Um, it has nitrous um oxide that influences it. And what it does is as the bladder is expanding, it determines how much of those chemicals get released into the bladder. Now, ATP, really important one, ATP directly binds to our our A-delta sensory afferents. So the more that urethelium releases ATP, the more your sensory afferents fire. So if you have an overactive urethelium, you will overfire your sensory afferents and you'll feel urgency the bladder wall is overactive but not the detrusor layer and so they're not the same thing yeah you can have overactive bladder an overactive bladder wall and overactive urothelium and have no detrusor overactivity and
1: you'll still be symptomatic very good Complex explanation organ. <laughs> i know it is amazing isn't it that's good it is amazing, which um leads us on to this next one that I, I feel like you do feel quite strongly about, mm-hmm. that caffeine is a major bladder irritant.
3: Yeah, good old physios on caffeine. Oh, my goodness. Um, now, you have to declare biases, don't you? I mean, yeah, when you've got biases, you could say that I'm biased because I drink ridiculous amounts of tea and coffee every day. So there's a bit of a bias there, but I like to think that when I have my bias, I actually even more overanalyze the research on this um, to make sure that my bias isn't being a a confounder um, of what I do. But this is one of those ones that, again, we had an observational study that had a confounding factor, um, and that led physios to believe that... Um, sorry excuse me to believe that caffeine was a problem but actually the research is pretty poor on this that it is so what happened was there was a study done where they looked at people who had urgency and they got them to cut out their caffeinated beverages like their tea and their coffee so they cut them out and their urgency got a lot better now if you listen to that study and you say well they cut out their tea and coffee and their urgency got so much better you'd go, well, it must be an irritant. That's how we treat this. And then you look at the study again and you realise that what they did was when they cut out their tea and coffee, they they literally cut it out. They didn't say swap your tea and coffee for water or non-caffeinated beverages. So their fluid intake actually overall changed from 2.5 litres down to about 1.7 litres a day, they were drinking less. Mm. Now, the thing with that is, is that we just were speaking about overactive bladder and those urethelial cells that can release all that ATP and trigger off all those sensory nerves. Urethelial cells are very lazy. They don't like being stretched fast. They're sort of like sloths. They want to move slowly. And when you move them really fast... Just, they don't adapt very well and they react by releasing lots of ATP. So what that means is we know that sensation in the bladder, we've always thought it was just about how full the bladder is. Was it at 250 mils? Was it at 350 mils? We actually know it's not that. It's much more about how fast the bladder is stretching. So if your bladder is stretching at two or three mils per minute, The urethelial cells are stretching slowly. They're moving like a sloth and they're really happy and they don't release all these chemicals into the bladder to trigger your sensory nerves. But if you stretch them really fast, they get really angry and they release all these chemicals. If you have a study that says take out your tea and coffee, so they literally just cut it, so your fluid intake drops, your kidneys produce urine at a much slower rate. You're going to diurese slower through the day because you've got less fluid intake, so you have a slower diuresis. So what it shows is is that you may have had less urgency because you let your bladder fill slower. So they repeated this study and what they did was next time they said to people, okay, we're going to get you to replace your tea and coffee with non-caffeinated beverages so you've got the same fluid intake, same urine output in 24 hours just with no caffeine. There was no difference in urgency um at that point so taking out the caffeine didn't do anything it was actually the change in fluid intake the change in urine output and how much you are annoying those urothelial cells by making the bladder stretch fast and so again you can understand why the myth is there but the research isn't
1: as strong as physios may yeah. think um yeah. that it really is and the majority of people do just drink too much don't they too much yeah. and too quick <laughs> Too much, too much,
3: too much, and you can just slow it down. And, and, you know, Hashem and Abrams did a really great study where all they did was reduce total fluid intake by 25% and got people to space it through the day, Mm. and they had significant drops in their urgency so their bladder just wasn't being stretched really, really fast. Mm. Um, Now, I'm not saying there wouldn't occasionally be people Mm. who have... Um, urgency associated with caffeine. It's like some people get urgency associated with artificial sweeteners, but not everybody does. And I think it's just an overstated thing. The other thing is, um, and people will then really get um, funny about this is, you've got to be careful about telling people to cut things out of their diet, which may have a health benefit. There is now pretty strong evidence in systematic reviews That coffee intake significantly reduces your risk of colon cancer, even to the point that if you have um, a high grade bowel cancer that you get removed and you start drinking coffee really quickly after the resection, your chance of a recurrence of bowel cancer is dramatically reduced. So it reduces the risk of colon cancer. What does it um, do? You just kill it, kills everything on the way through. <laughs> I, I don't know what it does. Is it because it
0: stimulates the um, gastrocolic reflex? Like you, people tend to be less constipated when they drink coffee?
3: I, I don't know the mechanism. I really okay. don't. But but we have multiple um, randomized controlled trials, we have observational studies, we have systematic reviews to show that coffee intake reduces colon cancer we also have pretty good research to indicate that coffee intake reduces um some of our neurological conditions as well so like parkinson's disease and various things like that so
2: um yeah it's a okay yeah we need to balance this
1: mm, you are making me want to have a coffee now Taryn. <laughs> <I> <laughs>
2: I'm gonna make one as soon as we finish yeah. this. And <laughs> it's such good news because I mean, oh yeah, I'm never gonna give up my coffee, but we do know how much of a problem you have with it. But it's good uh, for you. you
3: yeah. know, I've got this, I've got this absolute reputation for coffee. You do I this, yeah. how much do you have? I have, one, I have one coffee a day. That's all I have. Oh, I have one coffee a day. Lots of tea. I have, I have lots of tea. I would have six or seven cups of tea a day, but I, I only have a one coffee. I only have one coffee a day. Yeah. But I have this reputation about my coffee. Yeah.
2: You do. Um, but we're going to take a kind of different, not different turn. We're just going to go somewhere else. This is a big one because this has been a very long-standing myth that relaxin is the cause of ligament laxity in pregnancy.
3: Oh gosh. Yes. All right. Relaxin. Um, i have spent years trying to get physios to change this um and that you see it that you basically go to a conference and people will stand up and they've they've done a study on say pelvic girdle pain in pregnancy or they've done a study you know on various things and always they start with as we all know relaxant loosens the ligaments makes them more lax in pregnancy and it is my thing, I'll admit, I sit there and I sort of go, if your first sentence is wrong, how do I know whether to believe the rest of your presentation? So <laughs> we, had, we had one paper, um, possibly you could say a second one, that ever showed any link at all between relaxing and pelvic girdle pain. Okay, um, now with that... It wasn't even about ligament laxity at that point. It was about sort of pelvic girdle pain. Every other study has shown no link between the two. And in fact, Aldabi ended up doing a systematic review back. It was back in 2012. And they looked at all the papers and they said, look, like a lot of our studies, a lot of the studies were of poor methodological quality. Now, That includes the very first study that was ever done. And I don't like, I don't like giving the names when studies, you know, have major flaws to them. But if I say the main study that everyone quotes, it's not Christensen, okay, Christensen's a second study on it. The very first study that was ever done, what people didn't realise was, was that the relaxant that they used was not even human relaxin that they were looking at when they were testing this to, to look at this. They were actually looking, and I think it was like a rabbit um, relaxin or something like that, that may not react the same in humans, okay? And that's what everyone based everything off. Aldabi looked at it and said, okay, let's look at how many studies we've got. And they said, we've really only got four high quality studies and two low quality that you might look at if you really had to. Of the four studies, they said three out of four showed absolutely no association between relaxant and ligament laxity. One showed a borderline association. And so the systematic review said there is no association. And you look at the study after study, there's no association. Now, The thing is, does it really bother me if in clinical practice, physios say to patients, oh, you know, you've got this hormone relaxin that loosens the ligaments. I don't think from a, I suppose, a clinical perspective when you're speaking to a patient, if that's not really true. I mean, it's cute, isn't it? Relaxin, it sounds cute to say relaxin loosens the ligaments um, Mm -hmm. from there. So we like to say it because it's sort of cute. It's a cute name, relaxin, and it loosens the ligaments. My problem is, is not that people say it, it's what their clinical reasoning then does, because we actually know that relaxin then drops out of, you know, relaxin peaks at about 12 to 14 weeks, by the way, in humans, um, 12 to 14 weeks of pregnancy, and then it drops to about half that level for the rest of the pregnancy. Um, By the time you've given birth, it's basically, you know, gone out of your system um, in terms of any circulating effect. When we associate something that's not true and physios believe it's true when we believe we know the answer there is no impetus to research what is causing the problem so then when patients say why do I have these problems when someone else doesn't you go well we don't know because everyone stopped looking for what really was going on because we've all been believing a myth for a long time and so the research sort of halted from there I mean we do know more but it's not relaxing. Mm.
1: Mm. Who calls it relaxing then? That's just what no. I start to think. Like who named it, it relaxing, it it's well, not the
3: no. <laughs> no, it should be called relaxing. And the reason it should be called relaxing is this came from obs and gynee because it does relax certain things in yeah. the reproductive system. It's yeah. just not the ligaments. So, you know, um obs and gyneys, um so you obstetricians gynecologists. They've absolutely done research looking at things like incompetent cervix, looking at whether the uterus stays relaxed during pregnancy. So it absolutely has a role in relaxing things in the reproductive system. Physios just wanted to stretch it to, you know, somatic structures and and that sort of thing. I mean, what's fascinating about this is that if there's any hormone that's starting to be the front runner of the causative factor of ligament laxity, It's actually estrogen. Now, it's probably oversimplifying and it's not going to only be estrogen. But if if people want to know what the front runner is, it's estrogen. And this starts to make a lot more sense. You know, little boys and little girls are pretty similar in their joint laxity when they're five, six, seven years of age. But you compare a 20-year-old male and a 20-year-old female who's been menstruating for a number of years, suddenly the laxity in females is a lot higher. They've started to have more circulating estrogen and everything starts to get more lax. In pregnancy, your estriol levels go to about 1,000 times normal levels. Your estradiol goes up sort of 50 to 100 times normal levels and progressively increases through the pregnancy and things gradually get more lax interestingly when you start thinking about that you just realize how amazing the body is because now you say the body's worked out you increase estrogen during pregnancy to make you more lax and more supple for the birth when you breastfeed it keeps your estrogen low so if there's any way to reverse that ligament laxity is then to breastfeed to keep your estrogen low so everything can tighten back up again this process is just amazing on how it does that That sequence.
1: Yes, very cool. I think the body is amazing. Karen, are crunches
0: bad for the pelvic floor? (laughs) Okay, so yeah, a lot of
3: people have heard me talk about this for a long time. Okay, so let's quickly say why have physios thought they would be? Probably the easiest reason to say why people have thought they would be is there's been a couple of studies that were of women lying down doing a trans ultrasound, and when they lifted their head, the bladder base dropped a bit. Now, that made physios say, oh, if you do a crunch, your bladder base will descend. Most of the people in their studies, the bladder base dropped maybe half to one centimetre. Now, what I need to clarify, though, is there's also been studies done on transperineal ultrasound, looked at the position of the bladder base relative to the pubic bone in lying down and then just stood someone up, when you stand up, most of the pelvic organs drop one to two centimetres at least, which means even if your bladder base drops half a centimetre when you do a crunch lying down, it's not dropping down as much as standing up and your body weight pushing down. It's, It's not as much. It's just a bit of movement, but it's less than standing up. You'd never tell someone to not stand up. If you look at it from pressure... Most of the studies by Odell, we are different of those who've looked at intravaginal pressures, Odell, I think, the pressures in the vagina are about 25 centimetres of water in standing from your body weight pushing down. When you lie down, the pressure in the vagina drops to about 5 centimetres. When you lift your head, it might go to 12 to 15. Again, the pressure goes up in the vagina compared to just lying down but it doesn't go up as much as standing. So basically what I would say to physios is it's not that the bladder base won't drop a bit, it's not that the pressure won't go up a bit, but it doesn't drop as much and the pressure doesn't go up as much as just standing. So if you want to tell your patients don't crunch, you also need to tell them not to stand because there's more pressure Hmm. through their pelvic floor
0: from standing than from doing a crunch leads us perfectly into the tone situation. So yeah. then in that case then is um, the actual question isn't in front of me. Um, sorry. So is a high-toned pelvic floor then always a bad thing? And if we find it, should we always down-train it or retrain it?
3: Yay. Okay. It's definitely been the new sort of um, it's the in thing isn't it to find a high tone pelvic floor and down train it you know when I started in pelvic floor 15 years ago everything was about strengthen the pelvic floor strengthen the pelvic floor strengthen the pelvic floor and now everything seems to be oh no down train the pelvic floor down train the pelvic floor I mean look I think we're all a bit um oh I don't know what what's the word to say we all can easily get into the you know the buzzword. The craze at the moment, you know, TA comes in for a long time, and then you know, all of a sudden, everything was about glute med for a long time, and then you know, everything was about multifidus for a long time, and you know, we get these crazes that come in, and at the moment, it seems to be about down training a high tone health.
1: <laughs> it's um, Kaido at my friend, my my, my son's school, Kaido. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, it was Pokemon.
2: Yeah, it's the thing that's going to be at the moment. <laughs>
0: I think the thing is,
3: is that when the first pelvic floor research was done, it was only ever being done on 55, 60, 65-year-old women who'd had four children, their pelvic floor was distended and so forth. And so when you have a distended, low-sitting pelvic floor, it was all about trying to lift it back up. The thing is, is that if you actually look at a group of 20 to 22-year-old nulliparous fit women who haven't had lifelong constipation, they're just healthy and fit, they do exercise, you often find that the pelvic floor is sitting much higher and with much higher tone than what it is when we're seeing our women at 45 after children. Now, there is a point where it's dysfunctional. And when I say it's dysfunctional, if your pelvic floor is so high tone that you can't defecate, you can't have intercourse, you, you have pain with intercourse, you you know, all of those things because it's obstructing those functions, okay, it's now dysfunctional. But there are a lot of 20, year old females with no pain with intercourse, no obstructed defecation, and yet if you assess them compared to the cohort you see with prolapse and incontinence, their pelvic floors would all be diagnosed as high tone. Now, they're not having any problems. The thing about a higher tone pelvic floor is that at the end of the day, the pelvic floor is the floor of the pelvis. I don't really think it matters what floor you talk about, but I've got a floor that I'm on right now that I'm sitting, you know, with a chair on a floor. The only purpose of a floor is to support the things that are above it and to hold the things that are above it. If you have a pelvic floor that is higher tone, it's giving more support to the structures above it and it's not causing you problems, then actually why wouldn't you have that support 24 hours a day? The only reason we teach all those things like the knack to women postpartum is that we know after giving birth, The pelvic floor is sitting lower, which means the bladder neck sits lower. It's all sitting lower all day. And when we have pressure come down, it's going to get lower again. In fact, when you get someone to knack who's parous, there's a good chance that their knack position lifted may actually be only the same position as what someone is who's never had a baby. You're just temporarily bringing them up to the support they used to have all the time. If you happen to find a Paris woman whose pelvic floor is sitting at that height all the time, like it was probably when they were 22 before kids, why would we bring it down to match every other Paris woman? Why wouldn't we let them keep their 22-year-old pelvic floor that's sitting at really good tone? They get the support to the fascia all day. They get, you know, I mean, I look at this, you know, there's a reason why after breastfeeding and that sort of thing, underwire bras are really good to, to wear. Now, if someone said to me, I could still have my 22 year old breast that stayed up and perky without an underwire bra, I'd probably be happy with that. But when things change, you then need more support. You know, the ideal is that good supported structure. If it's not causing a problem, why would we bring it down? Um, It's giving
1: support to the organs all the time. Good news for my vagina, Taryn. Good news. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I just, I just, you know, don't have think of, let's bring this pelvic floor down, I go, why? You know, why would you do that? You know, this person has no problems.
2: Seriously, we. I, I don't know how you would just choose eight to do because I'm sure there are so many others that we could definitely um, be going through that we obviously yeah. don't have time uh, for. Yeah. Um, but I love, I love everything that we've talked about. We might actually have to do another episode with more of these because there are so many out there. Thank you so much because I know how busy you are and how much time you probably don't have and getting four people together is always, always a treat, always really fun. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for your time
3: yeah lovely to have been here and and you know it's always good talking about different ideas and things and you know i mean pelvic health physios are you know we are a passionate bunch we love our stuff we love our research we love our information and so it's always good getting together with you guys and having a chat about different things so it's been
0: really lovely to be here thank you for inviting me